I do. Uh, my grandfather's a big Southern Baptist TV preacher. Uh, my dad is a pastor, and I do this. So they are just giddy about it. Uh, I think this is just a more fun version of preaching. Uh, I don't have to baptize anybody. Uh, that's gross. I'm not trying to get in a hot tub with some sinner. Uh, I don't know where they've been. Uh, they're washing it off. I don't want it floating over to me. I'm not trying to catch the reason they're here. Especially during COVID. I was like, I don't know when we're going to be able to safely baptize again. Baptize someone with a mask on. That is waterboarding. Technically, you got to really want salvation. To be I thought all the churches were going to have to buy those carnival dunk tanks. And then the pastor could just throw a softball from six feet away to see who gets in heaven. I think that's a better system. I think people start going back to church. We have Falcons tickets for Sunday, but Pastor Stanley's pitching with salvation on the line. Seems like we should go to that. Welcome to the aggressive life. You know, I think that if we want to be aggressive, we're going to have to do things that people aren't willing to do. You know what that means? That means laughing. Why is everyone so freaking serious all the time? Why is everyone looking for like the hidden agenda in things? Why is every? in fact, why do podcast hosts talk like this so intensely? Why, why can't we just laugh a little bit? Why can't we just have a little bit of fun? So t- today, I'm going to try to help you. I've got a guest on today who's going to help me have a little fun. Two of the hardest times I've laughed in the last couple of years was when this man did a little stand-up routine. <laughs> I'm already laughing at some of the things he said. I'm hoping he says, hoping he says today, his name is uh, Andrew Stanley. He's a stand-up comedian. He travels the world making people laugh with his trademark dry delivery. And if his name sounds familiar with Andrew Stanley, I know one thing about you. You're a churchy type person. Yeah, you're, you're churchy. You're all church all the time. You probably have Noah's Ark paintings on your bedroom wall because Andrew Stanley comes from a long line of preacher types. Andy Stanley is one of the most well-known, best, effective preachers, leaders in our country. Andy's got a church down in Atlanta with a bunch of campuses. Just He's, he's kind of a big deal. And his dad was kind of a big deal. Charles Stanley, if you know none of those names, that's cool. That's no, no worries about this. This is not a uh, religious churchy church podcast, but it's a podcast I'm trying to get you to move. And I just started to talk with Andrew after he made me laugh my butt off a few months ago and said, dude, I need to, I need to have you on the, on the podcast. And so he said, sure, why not? He earned a degree in finance, was in the financial field and said, you know what? I'm going to make a smart move. I'm going to I'm going to leave the world of finance and just go on the road as a comic. Welcome to the aggressive life, Andrew Stanley. Oh, thank you so much, Brian. That was an amazing introduction. I was listening earlier to the one um you did with the King and Country guys and all their, you know, introductions were like, you know, they got Emmys and Dove awards and I love that mine was like he has a finance degree. <laughs> I'm still working on those awards. 
So until then, I got to use my like finance resume as my comedy. <laughs> well, maybe one of the awards you'll be able to use someday is he's been featured on the Aggressive Life podcast. That's my new intro. Tonight, when I'm on stage, I'm going to be like, tell him you might hear me in a few weeks on the Aggressive Life podcast. <laughs> I, I felt a little awkward doing the intro, naming your dad, naming your grandfather. Uh, I just figured I'd, I would put that out there because some people would have mental space going, wait a minute, is that the guy? Is that the guy? Is that the guy? Does that bother you that, that you get introduced sometimes or you're known as who your dad was or who your grandfather was in certain circles? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm so used to it. And it's one of those things, like you just mentioned, where a lot of times, depending on the setting, if you don't mention it, the whole time the audience is going to be like, why does that name sound familiar? And be distracted by like, is I feel like there's a connection I'm not making. So especially in a context like this, where a lot of people that might mean something to them, it's it's worth it to mention up front. And, uh, and I'm lucky that I'm very proud of being a part of my family. Because so many people who have relatives that have accomplished a lot and are well-known or like, oh, I'd rather not be associated with them, but I, that is not the case for me. So that's never a problem. Right. I want to step out from behind their shadow and yeah, you step out from behind their shadow though. And the sun will, the sun will scorch you sometimes. Sometimes a shadow or a stepping stone is nice. Yeah. And it, and I've definitely learned, it helps me that what I do is stand up where there's there's no faking doing well. So if I'm on stage and got introduced any type of way, it's not going to affect how loud people can laugh for an hour. So at the end of the day, I, I know that I did well or badly based on my jokes because it's such a direct response that you're getting. How does your act change when you're in a club uh, where just normal beer drinkers are who are in the pub versus at a pastor's event, which is where you and I were together last. How does the content change? Yeah, uh, my goal is to not have too many jokes that I couldn't do in either of those places. And I'm always, the first place I'm trying jokes is in comedy clubs. It's very rare that I'm trying a new joke at a church uh, for all the reasons you probably think of. But my goal is to be funny enough for a comedy club and clean enough for a cool church which is a big distinction. Cool is just a lazy way of saying a church that, I mean, I always say church comedies kind of clean in that context is kind of a spectrum because I've performed at a church where people were drinking beer in the audience and I performed at a church where they got mad at me for saying beer. So saying it's, it's beer. always a moving target. <laughs> yeah. So I say, uh, Somewhere in the middle is where I'm trying to be clean enough for. I don't, there's some that I don't think I could ever be clean enough for, but, um, I try not to change my act too much. There's definitely context that changes, and I'm not going to go into the comedy club and open with a joke about mission trips or anything like that. But, you know, I might find a way 20 minutes into my set to, to find a way into that topic in a way that doesn't exclude people that might not have the church background that people at a church show would. And then same thing, vice versa. In, uh, in a church setting, I might talk about things that happened to me when I perform at a club. And when I'm at a club, I might talk about things that happened to me when I perform at a church because both of those audiences are fascinated by the other one. Ah. So does the people in the bar, they like to hear about your homeschool experience. Can you tell us about your homeschool environment? Because I know that that'd be really helpful for a lot of us to hear. Let me tell you, there are homeschoolers everywhere. I, uh, whenever I talk about that, which is a lot, uh, 
I always ask, are there any homeschoolers here? And whether it's a church or a bar or any of the strange places I find myself performing, there's always somebody that is raises their hands, you know, that makes them feel seen. And it's so funny. We always think about homeschoolers as just church people from big families that are get their heads down. But they uh, homeschool is just like everybody. They kind of spread out and go all the different directions. So they're they're we're everywhere. We have a we have a strong alumni network. We just don't have any way of connecting. They don't come and connect at the bars and hang out and talk about Noah's Ark. I, some of yeah, yeah. What's the deal with Noah's Ark? The uh, and I was talking about clean church comedy kind of being a spectrum. So is homeschool. I always say there's there's the homeschoolers that make their own clothes and you know never meet other people, and then there's the homeschoolers that just got kicked out of all the schools, so they have to homeschool. So. It's the same thing where it's it's easy to put them in a box, but it's really all types of folks. Tell us about this transition you made. That's part of why I think you're impressively aggressive. Uh, we were talking, we were on the bus about what the path is to becoming a comic, how, how you're a comedian, how, how, how you start, how you feed yourself, how you transition from a legitimate career path to doing what you're doing right now. Just walk us through that phase. What what caused you to do this this really risky thing you're doing? Yeah, it was that definitely has always felt risky. I um I was very fortunate. I graduated from college and got a job in finance in Atlanta, um, working in a cubicle. And about a year into that, I started to feel like this even the people that if I got promoted twice, I'm like, I don't even think I'd want if you said you're doing that in 10 years, I wouldn't even be excited about that. So I was like, I don't think this is the path that's going to get me motivated. So I started to think about what other kind of stuff I'd been good at. I always thought I was funny. And so I'm like, well, I think I'm funny, but I don't know how to make that a job. I was never interested in public speaking. So stand up didn't even cross my radar. But I always thought, you know, my growing up, I loved watching The Office and all these comedy sitcom type shows. And I was like, I bet that the people that write that have the best job in the world. I bet that that is the most fun room to be in, throwing around dumb ideas for things that are going to make people happy. And so I said, well, I don't know anybody that does that. So I don't even know who to ask about what I would need to do to get on that track. So I talked to my dad and about, I just mentioned all that to him and he said, well, why don't, you, uh, why don't you have lunch with Jeff? And I was like, Jeff Foxworthy? And he's like, yeah, we know him. And I was like, you know him. I don't really know him. And my dad was like, well, text him. I bet he'll, be, he'll, uh, he'll have lunch with you. And so sure enough, Jeff is the nicest guy in the world and took me to California Pizza Kitchen and gave me advice. And we still didn't really talk about stand-up. He just kind of said, well, how about I'll connect you with a comedic writer that I know, and then you guys can take it from there. And so I started emailing this guy, Scott, and he said he would only help me with comedy writing if I wrote five minutes of jokes and went and told them at a stand-up comedy club open mic. And I said, okay, well, I will just find someone else to help me because I'm not interested <laughs> in that at all. I've been, run I've been running away from the stage my whole life. Oh, wow. And, uh, and, uh, but he can, he was, he's the now, kindest hold, hold, guy. Stop right there. Yeah. Uh, running sure. away from the stage your whole life. Do you mean by that running away from doing what my dad and grandfather did? Did you feel some pressure to be a preacher man? There was probably a little bit of that. I, my dad was so zero pressure when it comes to that. And I'm 
completely serious. The uh, I, him growing up as the son of a well-known pastor, I think, set him up to parent very well to kids that are growing up as the kids of a well-known pastor. So there was never any pressure from inside the house, but it was always, it's one of those questions that people would ask all the time that they don't think anything of, but then it starts to take a toll eventually. If everybody asks, so are you going to be a pastor? So you're going to be a pastor? So you're going to be a pastor? And so it was one of those things that never felt very heavy, but maybe it was. Uh, but it, from coming from home, there was none of that pressure. So it really was never even a serious consideration. But I was constantly having to explain to people why I wasn't going to do that, is what I mean when I say running away from it. Got Not it. that I wouldn't have wanted to do it if I thought I was supposed to, but it just was never something I was feeling this draw towards that I felt like you were supposed to feel if you're going to do that. Um, so yes, and also in even in school, I was never the one that wanted to present if we had like a group project. I would do wow. extra work so that other people would present because I just didn't enjoy being the center of attention or being the person uh, speaking in front of everyone. Well, they say that speaking in front of a crowd is the number one fear that people have. Is it Was it a fear that you had or was it just something you weren't interested in? Yeah, Seinfeld has, has that great bit about that. He goes, uh, the number one fear is public speaking, and number two is death. So my career is scarier to some people than their own death. <laughs> it says, I think he goes, and so if you're at a funeral, most people are better off being the corpse than the person giving the eulogy. Mm. Uh, but it's, I think it was definitely a fear. It was also something that I just had not done a lot of, and I don't know what it was. I just, was, I think a lot of people can probably relate. It just, I was just never comfortable talking in front of people. So you've got your five-minute test. The guy told you what happens. Yeah, so the the temptation people feel a lot of times when they're starting to do stand-up and they have their first show on the calendar is they invite all their friends, which is not what you should do hmm. uh, because you're not good at first for a while. You actually probably shouldn't tell people until you're about six years in. Interesting. Um, no, not that long. But I, uh, I was... It took about, I took probably a month to write these five minutes of jokes before I could actually get on stage. And part of it is because there's a waiting list to even be able to get on the open mic. So I was scheduled, I think, two or three weeks in advance. Um, and so I said, well, I've never been to a stand-up comedy open mic. Maybe I should go see what it's like. So I just went and bought a ticket and went and saw the show. And the format is basically like 15 to 18 comedians doing five minutes. And I remember leaving there kind of comforted because I left and was like, oh, I won't be the worst. <laughs> because there's some deranged people that sign up. For, for, I mean, yeah. there's some lunatics. You, I've met so many lunatics doing this. Uh, it's great. Some of them are amazing. But you get the, these open mics, it's, a, it's just a, almost a disaster. It's, you see people that are fantastic, and then you see people that are trying it for the first time, and then you see people that are trying it for the 100th time, but they're still doing all the same things from their first time. And so it's really a fun, a fun social, people-watching kind of experience. If anybody wants to have a weird date with their wife, go to a stand-up comedy open mic, and you will remember it. Um, but I just remember leaving there being like, well, at least I won't, I might be bad, but I won't be memorably bad, which I think was a big part of my fear. It was like, I don't want to be so bad that I'm everybody's story. <laughs> like they're all, they're like, oh, we went to the show. There was this guy. I think he's our preacher's son and he was horrible. 
Um, <laughs> so that gave me a little bit of confidence kind of as I prepared and I was still so nervous. I remember I kind of, I went on stage and it went okay. I, I was so tied to my script because I was very, I was so overprepared. I had memorized every single word. And I think at one point I kind of got off track and then I had a hard time recovering, but then kind of found it again at the end. And I, uh, I remember thinking that was fine. I didn't do, I think my jokes are better than I was. So I wanted to do it again because I was like, I need to do those jokes the way that I wrote them and not the way that I kind of stumbled through them. So that's what encouraged me to get up there the second time. And then it was kind of a thing where I would do it once every two weeks. And then I started meeting other comedians and get invite, invited to go see other shows and kind of get ingrained in the Atlanta comedy network. And before long, I was leaving my cubicle every afternoon to go to whatever show was that night. So I was doing both pretty full time. Oh, so you were double dipping. That's how you, that's how you did that. Yeah, my transition was not at all, and uh, no one doing stand-up should uh, do, no matter how well your first week of comedy goes, do not quit your job yet, because it takes a long time to start earning any money, because most of the shows you're doing are just for free, and people are doing you a favor by putting you on stage, because you're a risk to the show, and nobody knows if you're funny or not. So I was doing both for a full year, where I was just kind of spending my days at the office and then going straight to a show. So at what point is it I'm earning X amount on the circuit and so that's going to replace X amount of my previous job? Or is there is there some standard formula you look at there before you actually make the jump? Or is it not even a certain amount of money? It's just faith that it's going to come in if I give it full time. Yeah, and my job I was at, my title was literally budget analyst. So when it came to making that decision, I was I was basically doing what I did at work, just trying to figure out, all right, if I stop doing this and do this more, where, where are we going to land? And I was probably overthinking it to a large degree. I had a lot of advantages um, early on that many comedians don't have, part, part mostly because of the opportunities I got in the church world because of just nepotism, honestly. Like I remember I was less than a year into stand-up and I got the opportunity to go uh, at um, Orange Conference, they were like, why don't you introduce your dad before he speaks? We heard you're doing stand-up. Why don't you just do five minutes and then bring him on stage? And it was in front of 6,000 people. And I, you're not supposed to get to do that until you're 10 years into comedy, maybe if you're opening for someone. So I didn't, I, I had no idea to be afraid of that. I was just, the advice I always got from comedians was like, say yes to every opportunity. Just know, even if it sounds horrible, you just got to say yes, say yes, say yes. And that's how you're going to get better. So I was like, all right, I guess I'll do this. And thankfully it went well. And, uh, you know, I just had to do five minutes. And and then I started getting emails from some people that were there uh, saying, hey, would you want to come do this at our fundraiser? Do you want to come do our volunteer appreciation night at our church? And I was just like, oh, I just do comedy clubs for five minutes and go 15th out of 18. And you want to fly me somewhere? And so I started to get these opportunities out of town to travel. And I was doing that for, you know, at least a year where I was, I started to use all my vacation days from my job to go to these events during the week. And, um, and that was great until after about a year and a half, almost two years of doing that, I was, it was October of 2018 and I was out of vacation days and my calendar was booked through March of 2019. So I was like, all right, I got like almost, you know, pretty much six months of really good booked work that would be, if that continued, it would cover 
my salary if I quit my job. Like I, I this run, this short runway is the trajectory I would need. But how my my runway is never going to be longer than this because people aren't booking events a year and a half in advance. So it was either I need to quit my job or start saying no to gigs. And I, at this point, I knew I get you know the thing that fills me up is doing stand up, and I had already decided deep down that this budget analyst finance career isn't the thing that I wanted to do long-term anyway. So, um, and to give even more detail in a, in a long story, I had just gotten a promotion at my job where I was actually going to be moving to a different office and had kind of a, a good, uh, you know, salary bump and I had interviewed for it and I had just got it. And so I put in my two weeks at my current role and said, Hey, I got this other role. And, uh, and then about a week into that, my now fiance and my parents and my friends were saying, Andrew, what are you doing? Why are you starting a new job in this lane that you're not even really that interested in? And I was like, because it's, say, I want health insurance and I want to have all this, you know, it feels like that's what I'm supposed to do, right? I got a finance degree. I can't just bail. And really, I was the last person to decide in my close circle of family and friends. So like, Andrew, why are you still wasting your time with this? You need to take advantage of this momentum you have in comedy. So... I told the job that I had accepted, hey, I'm actually just not going to start this job. And then uh, I had already quit my other job, so it was kind of the transition out. Well, that really speaks to the quality of the people you have around you. I thought you, I thought you were saying the people around you were telling you that's crazy to go into comedy. Then as you kept talking, I said, oh, no, the people closest to you are encouraging you to take the jump. Uh, you're, you know, your mom and dad's stock just went up even further in my eyes. To, to tell their son, hey, get out of finance in a promotion and try this thing that's unpredictable. Wow. Andy and Sandra, well done. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, my dad would always text, tell Jeff Foxworth, he'd be like, you see what my son just, you just made my son do? You can encourage him to quit his job. But he's totally kidding. And it's, uh, I feel so fortunate, especially when I talk to a lot of my comedian friends and when they made the decision to go full-time and stand up you know, they're, they have all these horror stories of telling their parents and telling their friends. And I just had it so easy when it came to support through that decision that I, I'm just extremely grateful. Well, unfortunately, you're marrying somebody from the cartel who can who can take care of you as well. <laughs> yeah, right. I, well, I, yeah, now I'm engaged to an attorney, so I'll get health insurance again here any, in, a, in a few months. Attorney from Columbia, you said. That's a. I'm trying. Yeah, I'm trying to feed Columbian. you with all your lines. You're not. You're not biting on oh, your lines. Doing, I wanted you to hit the thing doing. about science and your mom. You, but you're not. You're not. You're not biting, Andrew. I'm asking you to be funny. One of the hardest things in stand up is when people are like, "Hey, why, why don't you? Why don't you tell that joke you did the other night and it worked so well?" But yeah, well, in this context, it feels pretty different when there's right. not a, a room full of people. But that's during the pandemic. I mean, that's kind of what our options were. We started to do a lot of virtual shows, a lot of them on Zoom. And the best ones were we had, you know, 100 people on Zoom unmuted so you could at least hear some laughs. But I had groups that were like, hey, can you just record yourself doing 45 minutes of stand-up and then just Dropbox it to us and then we'll play it for our people. Uh, And let me tell you, uh, that is the most brutal version of stand-up is just trying to decide how long you think people are going to laugh and pausing <laughs> because normally you pause as long as the laugh lasts, but I'm up in my room just like, all right, that one usually gets like a few seconds. So I'll wait. <laughs> there's, there's nothing that makes you question your material more than just saying it into dead air. 
Well, it's not just that. It's it's immediate feedback. So for our online experience in my day job at Crossroads, we have a, a pre-recording normally on location. We found the people who want to be a part of Crossroads that can never drive to a local local place because they live in, you know, Missouri or Colorado or someplace. Uh, they they don't want to watch a service that's in a building with people that they'll never be able to be a part of. It's just that that's just not me. Mm-hmm. I'm an I'm an outsider. But if they're part of something where everybody who's not having the online experience, they feel like, oh, this is my church. So I have to record my message whenever I speak four days ahead of time in some sort of on location or studio. And I hate it. I hate it. I just, I, it, yeah. it turns out okay, but I hate it. It's, it's, there's no life that you're feeling with the feedback. For the first time, I start to understand why in the black church, I wish we had more people from the stereotypical black church because you want to go, amen, come on now, brother. Well, well, come on now. Yeah. Preach, you know, it's, it, as a communicator, preacher, or comedian, we need that feedback. Yeah, it's, uh, especially as a comedian, you, I look at what you do on a Sunday and think, you know, how do they do that without getting all this direct feedback? Because I, I never have to wonder how I'm doing because the audience is very vocally or non-vocally telling me how I'm doing. Um, but with preaching or communicating in other ways, it's it's more subtle. And I'm sure that the more you do it, the more you pick up on those subtle things. And you can tell whether you're connecting with people or not by just feeling the room and seeing the way people are engaged or not. Um, so when you switch to just kind of preaching to the camera or to an empty room and a camera, it loses that kind of communicative back and forth, even if one side is unspoken. You kind of lose that general feel. But I think that when people watch you at home, when you're preaching in the empty room, I don't think that they feel it as much as we feel it. I think right. that it's something that's almost selfish on my end, that I'm like, I hate doing this just to the camera. But then a month later, whenever they play it for their group, I'll get all these Instagram messages. They're like, hey, we just saw your thing. Thanks so much. We were dying laughing. Because I'm always like, please text me, if you, message me if you laughed at this at all, because I feel... And uh, I'm like, they still enjoyed it. So it's it's almost more on me than on than it actually. I think it still translates well. Well, that's why a lot of preachers they'll say something. They'll say, "Amen," and everyone says, "Amen." Yeah, I mean, right. There, there, there's a percentage of that which is just I need to hear from you to keep myself motivated. You know, I I, I need yeah. that for myself. Uh, the the messages that are hardest for me in an audience. If it's, a, if it's a message it's, that you know going in, into it is going to be a pump you up for your life kind of message, you're, you can read the audience really well. The ones that are the hardest for me is I preached recently on Genesis 1. Is the, is the world 6,000 years old in 24-hour literal days? I believe that Genesis 1 does not communicate that. Now, a lot of our homeschoolers here are going to immediately shun me <laughs> on the aggressive life. Uh, but like, I, 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 actually, I, talk- I actually have to go, Brian. Thanks for having me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> really appreciate right. it. Something about the connection. I got to. <laughs> uh, right. Right. I respect you if that's your conviction. I don't believe that's what the text <laughs> says. I don't believe that's what it says. And I, I went into that. And that one, I went into it. I had three services that morning. And after the first one, I was like, oh, man, this one is like. This is bomb and this is not well. And then I and then I remembered, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. this is what a crowd's like every time when they're deeply mentally engaged, when they're mentally processing something very, very deeply, everybody has a stone face. 
they're not smiling, they're not laughing because they're in deep thinking mode. And that's that's how I was just so when I realized I was like, okay, let's recategorize it. I'm not bombing. This is just a different kind of talk that's requiring all their energy to go into processing. Feel better about yourself, Brian Tome. You don't need the normal laughs that you that you actually enjoy. Yeah, that's a good that's a really good point. That's not something that uh, even if it, if I make people think too hard, that is a problem because I, I need them to be laughing the whole time. But yeah, in preaching, I would imagine you get to a certain level of connection with an audience to where they have to kind of go inside themselves to process it. And I could see how from stage that would feel like they're not engaged, but really they're so engaged that they can't, they're too focused to be showing it. So that's that's interesting. I never thought about that. Well, when everybody comes to a church, everyone has a different motivation for coming. And what motivates us to get there is going to be the thing that motivates our response. We had uh, Michael Jr. a number of years ago came to Crossroads. Yeah. You know Michael Jr.? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, hilarious. He is, he's a great guy. He, he's, he's, re- he's really good. And I, it was a really tough crowd for him on a Sunday morning. Really, really tough crowd for him. And, and we're, we're one of those churches where people be slamming beers in church. Well, not on a Sunday morning, but <laughs> um, I mean, no, we, have, we have alcohol in our buildings all the time. It's not, it's not a big deal for us. So I was really surprised that like he had a hard time with it until uh, what well, we were talking afterwards, he and I, I think it was he said, he said, but you got to realize People, people didn't opt into a comedy show this morning. When people come to a club, they're opting into, I'm coming here because I want to laugh. So they're already, they're wanting that. People opted into here for, uh, I wanted motivation. I wanted to learn something about the Bible I didn't know. I just wanted to be in a, in a positive environment. So, you know, it, it's harder to get folks like that to engage who, came, who didn't came, come to engage in that way. You're absolutely right about that. And there's a lot of challenges on it. I've done a handful of Sunday morning shows like that and you're always fighting several things and the biggest one probably is exactly that like Michael said and there's even a difference at a comedy show where people know it's a comedy show whether they paid for a ticket to it or if it was free and at a free show you can feel people being willing to leave or almost making when they pay for something they want it to be worth it so bad that they push themselves towards trying to convince themselves this was worth it and enjoying the show. When it's free, it's like, all right, let's see about this. And then in the morning when you didn't even know there was going to be comedy, you're having to think through, okay, this isn't what I expected, so I'm already kind of off balance. Two, this better be funny. Three, I'm tired. Four, you know, there's there's a lot of things working against you in the morning. But But you're totally right. The mindset an audience comes in with matters a lot. People talk a lot about calling or passion. I want to follow my calling. I need to be in something I'm passionate about. Do you have any thoughts on what comedy is or should be? Is it it like you have some core convictions about how comedy needs to be and our culture needs that? Or is it you just enjoy this kind of line of work and so that's what you do? Yeah, I think it's probably started out mostly as the the second thing. I started doing stand-up because I... (laughs) kind of got pressured into it. And then it was, can I even do this? Oh, this is fun. Let's see where this goes. And then I've, and then, you know, I did it for a few years and then a pandemic happened. And so it's, it's been a lot, felt like a lot of just trying to get better, trying to make people laugh. And then you have these moments sometimes after shows where somebody comes up to you and says, Hey, I really needed that tonight. And I'm like, what? Uh, and they're like, no, that was like really 
good for me. And I was like, oh yeah, I forgot that it had, that comedy has that power. It's not just a thing like going to the movie and getting to zone out for a while and just pure entertainment. But for some people, it really is something that you don't know you need. And then you realize, oh, I haven't laughed like that in a long time. I think my body needed that or my soul needed that. And it's, I don't want to put too much weight into what stand up comedy is because it's so silly and it can be enjoyed in different ways for different reasons. But I think there is something really cool about the way that comedy can be healing in a way, especially for people that are going through something. And so that's something that I've, I've learned. And then it also makes me feel more responsibility to, to deliver that sometimes because you're not just walking on stage thinking, all right, let's see if I can do well. It's like, let me see if I can make these people feel so good that they walk out of here feeling more positive. Um, so I try not to think about it too much as I'm walking on stage, but I get reminded of it all the time. When we've got a environment like we have right now with political unrest, pandemics, literal wars happening right now, gasoline, the most expensive it's ever been in history. Do you think those kind of conditions drive people to comedy or do those kind of conditions drive people away because they just want to stay inside of their bubble of woe? No, that's a good question. I, th I think sometimes it depends on the type of comedy and everybody's so different. Some people, I feel like when their world is is feels like it's falling apart for whatever reason, they don't want to hear somebody go make fun of the thing that is making them feel scared. And it's like, hey, can we just not even talk about it? But then there's some people that are like, I need us to talk about it in a way that makes me not just scared all the time. And so there's some comedians that are so good at taking what's going on in the world and, and writing a really good chunk of material about current events and what's going on in, in a way that makes people feel better. And I think that's really cool. That's not the kind of comedy that I'm doing a ton of at this point. I'm trying to, to do more of it. But there is there is something cool about comedy can calm people down. And for me, if if somebody tells a joke about something that I am going through, I love it because it makes me feel, one, oh, I'm not the only one going through this. Look, everybody's thinking about it. And two, hey, we can actually kind of laugh about it. And that takes away a little bit of its power. I was at the comedy cellar a number of years ago in New York. You know, you walk into that place, you have no idea who's going to be on stage, what it's going to be like. And this guy got up and he said, um, I'm Jewish. I'm Jewish, and uh, he, he talked with a kind of classic New York Jewish accent, and he and he said, just just, just by by curiosity, um, anybody in here Muslim? Any, any, any Islam folks in here? And he said, Oh, you okay? So, he said, See this little stage here. This is my stage. You can't come on my stage. Got to draw draw people back to Israel. You're, this is my place. You're not welcome to it. And it was it was really beautiful that. Like even the Muslims, they laughed at that. I mean, it was kind of cracking on something very, very sensitive. But it, it was, it was just one of those things where I saw the power of comedy. Like it's, it's the great equalizer. I think we need more of it. Yeah, it makes it makes things that are only looked at as serious. It lets you, it lets you look at it in another way, and it lets you look at something that's serious in a way that your guard isn't just up and your antenna's not up, and you kind of relax and still be around this topic that might be driving you crazy. And there's there's something really cool about that. Today's podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's a product I use every day. I started taking AG1 because 
I don't watch my diet too closely, but I know that I'm getting all the vitamins, minerals, and nutrients I can, as well as hydrating with 12 ounces of water right off the bat at the beginning of the day. One scoop of AG1, it's got 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens, and it doesn't taste like it. It actually tastes great. AG1 is a microhabit with big benefits. For less than $3 a day, you can take care of your health and invest in your future. It's recommended by professional athletes, health experts, and me. <laughs> to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packets with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash aggressive life. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash aggressive life to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. So go get you some and let's get back to the show. How about how you prepare? Lead us through the preparation time. If one of us, if we want to try a open mic night, or if we've got just speakers who are in whatever sector, just want to know how to create some funny material, what do you do to, to find it and put it down? Yeah, it's uh, one of the benefits of doing stand-up is that I get to try things as many times as I want. I, I don't know how you guys do it in the in the preaching world where it's you got you got one day to get this thing right and then it's gone and it's it's to, to get it right on the first try is not something that happens in stand-up very often at all. And so my process really is to kind of walk around always looking for the comedy in situations and then if I find something I type it into my notes app and then hopefully later that week I'll have time to, I set aside time to look through the stuff I wrote down and then try to kind of put it into outline form or type some more detailed thoughts. But really what I do now is I try to get on stage the night that I think of an idea. And around Atlanta, there's a lot of great open mics or shows where I can say, hey, can I have six minutes on this show? I want to try something. And um, it's a lot of how fast can I get this on stage? Because that's where I'm really going to learn, one, whether this works at all, and two, which parts of it work if some of it works. And you're constantly trying it, saying, okay, that didn't work, cut that out, that worked, keep that in, let's try this instead of that. It's a lot of whittling it down and building it back up in shows where the stakes aren't very high for me and somebody's not paying me a fee. I'm getting paid in chicken fingers. I can kind of work work for myself that night and work on new material. But I'm, I'm way more comfortable doing that on stage now. Like I mentioned earlier, when I was starting out, I had things typed out word for word. And if I got off my script, I didn't know where to go. But now I'm at the place where I'm comfortable enough on stage to where I can take a pretty raw idea up there and kind of just mess around with it until I find where a few of the laughs are and then take that data back and try to make it better for the next night. And what's the career path for you? Uh, like, what are the key markers to go to the next level? How do you know that you're progressing? Uh, is there a, a thing that when you get to do that thing or have that kind of gig, you go, okay, I've made it. I've made it, and this is going to be a fun life. What, what's what's that progression look like? And is it the same for you as it is for other comics? No, great question. It's not. I think there's there's no one path that always works, and there's a lot of paths that sometimes work. 
Um, and they're always changing. It used the model used to be um, if you get on the Tonight Show the next morning, you're famous and can go work at all the comedy clubs and maybe even get a sitcom or a development deal. Now you get a late night set and it's a cool YouTube video and a fun thing for people to say when they bring you on stage. But you're not, and you might get a 500 new Instagram followers. But it's not a career changer anymore. It's just kind of a really cool thing to get to do. Um, it's still one of my goals, but it's not the thing that, that blows you up. It's funny, podcasts have become almost kind of the new thing, even um, like Joe Rogan's podcast. A lot of comics have gotten famous from just having a really great time on an episode with him now. So there's all these alternative platforms uh, like that where people are getting seen. But the ultimate goal for most comedians, including myself, is to get to the point where you have a fan base that allows you to just tour around the country and do your own shows. So the the kind of phase I'm in right now is I'm performing at a lot of events, which is great. Um, but people aren't necessarily coming to see me at those. So like like where we met, I got hired to come speak to a bunch of pastors and spouses at this retreat. And it's great and it's fun. And I guaranteed to make whatever's on the contract. But the goal is to do enough stuff like that to where I have fan bases in different cities to where I can say, hey, I'm coming to your town. Here's the venue. Just buy tickets. And so there's different ways to, to build that following now. And social media is the, the big one. Um, podcasting is big. And just trying to find ways to to build a following that gives you all the options down the road. What's the biggest mistake people make in screwing up a joke or missing a funny line? Or what can we do to make sure that we're a bit more funny? Because all of us need to kind of put the pinprick in the crowd and deflate the tension that, that builds in lives and through the, through the course of talk. You got any tips for us? Yeah. No, definitely. There's, there's so many, and it's, I can t- talk nerd comedy stuff. All we could, that could be a whole other episode about all the stuff that I've had to learn the hard way. And, um, I mean, being one thing that I learned is being, being self-deprecating is really a good tool up to a point. Because it's funny, sometimes you'll see a comedian on stage trying a new joke where the angle is being self-deprecating and the audience feels genuinely bad for them. Mm. Like they were too, uh, they're being too hard on themselves and they're trying to do it in a way of disarming the audience, but it actually makes the audience go, oh no, do you really believe that about yourself? <laughs> and so that that's one of my, the funniest things to me to see and happen to another comedian because the audience is trying to help them but the comedian, that is, the, they would rather get no response than an aww. And so you can see the comedian, they can't get mad at the audience because the audience is doing something they think is kind, but it's driving the comedian crazy because like, no, I want you to laugh. Um, and so to me, that's a funny mistake that we all kind of have to make at some point. Um, put in the, the punchline, I mean, in joke structure, the, the thing that some pastors could probably benefit from is when you're trying to be funny on stage it really helps if the last word is the funny part. And uh, you see a lot of communicators sometimes they'll have a really funny story, but the funny part is somewhere in the middle and then they have to finish the story so it doesn't give the audience that kind of per- perfect spot to laugh because you have to give them the thing that's going to make them laugh and then they feel safe laughing when they also feel that there's a built-in space. So like, here's, and here's where we clearly laugh. Um, 
And that's so much harder to do when you're doing a sermon, you know, three times in one day and then that's it. But when stand-ups are getting to try their jokes all the time, you learn the jokes so well that you know the spots where it's going to work. Or I know this is the biggest laugh in this joke and that these three are good, but this big one needs to be the thing that's at the end. And so you have the luxury of getting to move things around and trial and error more. But I think as people are writing their talks, even if it's just for one time, you can think about... I think this is the funniest part. Make sure this is at the end and make sure I'm leaving a space for them to respond. Andrew Stanley, we've come to time in our podcast where it is time for the lightning round. Lightning round is when I give you a topic and you have to strike like lightning in one or two sentences to answer it. Like, are you up for the lightning round, Andrew Stanley? Well, you know me, I'm dynamic, high energy performer. So... (laughs) Lightning round is right up my alley. <laughs> okay. Comedy hero and why? Mm, my comedy, Bill Cosby. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, my comedy hero is probably Steve Martin. I think he's the funniest. I think his story is so cool. And the fact that he's still doing it, even when he does not need to be, is inspiring. He's still doing it? Oh, yeah. He was just in Atlanta. He and Martin Short do a two-man show together. I think they just kicked it back off. And uh, they're so funny. Oh, I need to see that. Uh, I like both those guys a lot. Topic that always makes you laugh? Um, Any kind of story where something just falls apart, where somebody's telling the story of something that happened to them and talking about how badly it went. And comedy comedians were always... Nobody says, hey, what's the best show you've had lately? That's never what we want to talk about. It's always, all right, what, uh, how was, how was that show? And it's, and hearing the story of other comedians just having a horrible time at a gig is, is always funny to us. The, uh, the next one I was going to give them the lightning round, but I, I'll make it a discussion instead of just a lightning round. The, the question was going to be, how do you deal with stress on stage? But instead, I was going to ask you and discuss, do you have nightmares about not being prepared, having a key gig, not being prepared? I, I have those every once in a while. Like the most recent one was so weird. Like not only was I not prepared, but I didn't have any clothes to wear and Bill and Hillary Clinton were in the audience and I had to give a killer <laughs> sermon. And I have no idea why, like, I don't think about Bill and Hillary Clinton at all. I don't, I don't think about it, but it's like, this comes up every once in a while. There's a key talk and I've got to give it and I, I'm, I'm not prepared and I don't have the right clothes. Do you ever, is that a, do you ever have something like that? That's so funny. It's so relatable. And I think everybody has that to a degree with whatever job they have, but it's so funny to me how specific your situation was is one, I don't know what I'm saying Two. I don't have the right clothes, which is funny. Like, what are even are the right clothes yeah, in a I'm dream? I'm off stage without any clothes, then, <laughs> to be more specific. Like, how do, how do yeah, I no find clothes. my... Yeah. No clothes. Yeah, I, mean, I got to walk out in front of the former president <laughs> and be like, sorry, I forgot my clothes. Uh, it's That's so funny. I, yeah, I, think, I feel like when I started doing comedy, my nightmare shifted from being back in high school, not able to find the room and forgetting there was a test that day and being locked out of the classroom or something. And now it is exactly like what you're saying. It's I'm on stage and I'm forgetting my jokes and the important person is there and 
I can't, I can't do it for some reason. I can't grab the microphone or I can't say the thing that I'm trying, that I can think of. I, in my act, I can, in jokes, I can, in, sorry, in dreams, I can remember some of my jokes. Huh. And so I'll be in dreams where I'm actually telling my real, some of my real act, but then I will lose track of it. And it almost makes it worse that my dream is like rooted in some reality of like, I am telling a joke that I actually do have and then I just lose the end of it or something. And uh, it's such a relief to wake up from those. <laughs> right, exactly. All right, I'm not very funny. How can I learn to be? <laughs> oh, I think you are funny, Brian. Well, um, I'm saying theoretically. Thank you, Andrew, that you think that I'm funny. <laughs> thank you. I, I don't know that I ever made you laugh, though, while we were together. You're just being nice because um, it's my podcast. No, well, if you're, if you're a standard for being funny is to make comedians laugh, then most comedians aren't even funny because we are so desensitized to huh. jokes. If, if you, We always say in stand-up, if you can make the back of the room laugh where all the comics are standing around, it's rare that the audience is laughing at the same time as the back of the room because we just think different things are funny. And, um, but, I mean, it's, well, my, I change that, my mind on this all the time. Go ahead. On that point, my fa favorite moment in my, my life is when I told the story to Jeff Foxworthy. We were on a bus someplace, and he said he's going to put it in his act. That was, oh, yeah. that was one of the favorite <laughs> things in my life. And it actually wasn't even my story. I told him it wasn't my story. He was a friend of my story, Steve Smith, who... Um, who pooped his pants. It's, it's an amazing story. But I was like, yeah, I got Jeff Foxworthy actually laughing. It was fantastic. Anyway, keep going. That might be the answer to the, the real answer to the question is what's the topic that always makes you laugh is when people, adults pooped in their pants. It's tough to beat. Uh, there's rarely a story like that that you're just like, oh, that was fine. It's usually the, the best thing of your week to hear those. Um, but, you know, can, can anybody become funny? I think that there's a lot of things you can learn and a lot of things that you kind of have to already have at a certain age. It's probably kind of like learning a new language. Like, it helps if you if you start when you're a kid um, or at least have funny friends growing up. It's I think if people have a good sense of humor, then they can learn to be funny on stage. But if you don't have a good sense of humor, then it's really tough to learn to be funny on stage because your your natural barometer for comedy might not align with with most people's so there's there's comedy classes there's stand-up classes some of them are, are are good a lot of them are taught you know by people that aren't doing professional stand-up comedy so you're like why are you going to that but um i i learned the thing i did when i started is i listened to this podcast called the school of laughs podcast and it's this guy that just teaches stand-up techniques and he I think his tagline is uh, get funnier and make you just no matter why you're on stage, here's how you can be funnier on stage. And I learned so many tips from him that helped me be funnier faster and not have to learn as many lessons the hard way. So there's definitely things that you can do to, to learn, but some people are lost causes. Andrew, anything else that we haven't covered yet that you want to talk about? No, I would love to. It's it's so funny. Thank you so much for inviting me. I don't feel like a good fit for the Aggressive Life podcast. I'm such a, uh, I think I even did the jokes where I talk about how unassertive I am compared to my fiance, who's Colombian, super assertive. And uh, my podcast is actually called No Worries If Not, which is maybe the <laughs> opposite of the Aggressive Life podcast because it's about, you know, not being assertive and navigating life and 
stuff like that. So I'm honored, one, to be on your podcast, and two, that you would have me on, even though I don't know that I embody the uh, the typical spirit of an aggressive life guest, probably. Well, you may not have the, uh, I don't know, the persona that someone would expect from somebody who says they're aggressive, but nobody goes from the finance world to the comedy world, the security of finance to comedy without having an aggressive bow in their body. So no, man, you are, you are, you are in the club. Be very secure in All that. All right. I can't wait to tell everybody, hey guys, I am officially aggressive. Yes, you are. All right, if someone wants to follow up with you or follow you, just go ahead and promote yourself. Yeah, andrewstanleycomedy.com is my website. It's got a way to contact me and also my calendar. If I'm in your area, I would love to, for you to come to a show. And you're coming to Cincinnati at some point, right? Isn't that what we, we said in the bus? Yeah, I'll be there for a homeschool convention. Uh, let's see <laughs> what the date is. April uh, 22nd. Oh, shoot, that's coming up. And um, Instagram is at Andrew W. Stanley and podcast is No Worries If Not with Andrew Stanley and Aaron Tuning. Hey, it's really been good being with you today, Andrew. For all of us, let's, let's lighten up a little bit. You know, I'm not, not many of us are going to ever go in front of an audience at a club and do open mic, but all of us need a little laughter. It's good for the soul. So Let's go out there and aggressively laugh. You will laugh and you will like it. Be very aggressive about it and very angry about it. Let's do that. Yeah, yeah, that, that's my new style. I'm going to try that tonight. You should. Hey, we'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. The Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.